Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. For a guy who has not said that he's playing his final season with the Pittsburgh Steelers, last night did look and feel an awful lot like Ben Roethlisberger's final game in Pittsburgh. Like, I'm not too sure I've seen too many guys get that emotional at the end of a game that was not their final game in front of their home fans. You know, a little unusual to be taking a partial victory lap if that was not the end. And kind of strange to be saying things like this. This is home, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it just, I know I'm, I was born in Ohio, but I live here and I'll always be here. And um, these fans in this place, it just it means so much to me and my family. And uh, always will. And uh, I, I've always said that they're the best fans in all the sports. And I'll stick by that to the day I die. And to see all the signs and the jerseys and the, the towels and to hear them cheer for, for me coming out of the tunnel, all that stuff, it just... Um, I don't know that I'll ever put it into words, and that's why I want to soak it. I wish I could bottle it and, and have it forever. All right, so hearing that and then seeing him tear up on the field at the end of the game, I think I'm just going to go ahead and call that his final game in Pittsburgh. I mean, it sure feels like we can go ahead and stop using words like likely, potential, possible when talking about whether or not that was Ben's final game there. Like, it would be pretty weird to go through all of that and then come back next fall and be like, hey, yo, it's me. Remember all that thank you, Ben stuff? Yeah, well, let's run it back. And if the guy was going to go out last night, he was going to go out throwing a lot. 46 pass attempts. It's a hell of a way to go out, right? You want to talk about going down, guns blazing, airing it out nearly 50 times. Although airing it out might be a bit of a stretch. Like, there was a stretch where he threw 30 passes in 41 plays. I would say, damn, that's putting a strain on his arm and his shoulder. But the fact of the matter is, his longest pass of the game was 13 yards. He was averaging 2.7 yards per pass attempt, which is the lowest of his career. Now, what I'm not here to do is mock him or clown him for that. It's fine. In fact, it's better than fine. I'll tell you why. It's better than fine because it tells you it is time. So not only did Ben's emotions last night feel like it was proof that that was his last night in Pittsburgh, his play last night felt like it was confirmation that that should be his last night in Pittsburgh. And again, I'm coming from a positive place. When I say that, I mean this guy has given it everything he has. And now he's done. I mean that in the best possible way. Like, he left everything out there. This guy's taken so many hits, thrown so many passes. He's asked everything he could ask and gotten everything he could out of his body. And last night was proof that he's gotten everything out of it that he could. And he goes out a winner. So, I'm not going to crack him for any of that, nor am I going to crack him for getting emotional or blubbering up after the game. I mean, good for him. Everybody should be so lucky to have a career where they play 18 years with the same team, win a couple of Super Bowls, have a bunch of iconic moments, and then go out with a win in their final home game. I mean, very few guys get to do that. Almost nobody gets to do that. So that is the dream scenario. You know, in terms of the way he did it and him chucking the ball around, well, dinking the ball around, It's like the Browns kept daring him to throw it instead of handing it to Najee Harris, who was punishing them on the ground. And Ben kept accepting the dare. I understand why Cleveland was doing that. After all, 
Who wants any part of this? 10, second and 10 from his own 22. Hands off under center, gives to Harris 30. Got a block, he's at the 35, far sideline 40. Stiff runs his way into a defender, runs in front of the bench. He's out in midfield on the far sideline. He took that arm, hammered away a defender, runs for 24. Second big run tonight for Najee Harris. Westwood one. Najee Harris put MJ Stewart in the ground. Is there anything funnier or better than a great stiff arm that puts a guy in the ground? Damn near put him to the center of the earth. Man, that's like some jump off your couch and yell, holy bleep, kind of bleep. One of those things where I'm watching it and my wife's like, what's so funny? What's so funny? I'm like, what's so funny? Watch this. She's like, why is that funny? I'm like, oh, it's funny. It's awesome. Like, you see a play like that, and if you're the Browns defense, you're just begging Ben to throw the ball because Ben throwing the football is better than Najee throwing stiff arms. So as long as Ben is there, at least for one more week, it is Ben's team. However, if you've been watching the Steelers at all lately, you know who the team is about to belong to. Trent Jordan Watt. Exactly how many guys were there on the field last night wearing number 90? It felt like there were about a half a dozen of them. Chicago's Robert Quinn ripped the sack lead from Watt on Sunday by getting to 18 and a half, actually 18, half a sack ahead of Watt. So what did Watt do? He ripped it right back repeatedly. He had not one, not two, not three, but four sacks last night. And honestly, I don't even think that that felt like that did him justice. He's got 21 and a half on the year. It felt like he had 21 and a half last night. This guy was punishing Baker Mayfield. He was treating Baker like the dude who owed him money. And that fourth sack of the night might have been the most brutal. Shotgun snap to Mayfield from his 42. Hit by Watt. Down he goes. Watt has done it again. Sack number 21. His fourth sack tonight. He cannot be stopped. A one-man wrecking crew. T.J. Watt is phenomenal. Kevin Harlan has done it again. Now Watt is a sack away from Michael Strahan's season sack record. Single season. And yes, I know that Watt is going to get a chance to break that record in the 17th game. But I also know that Watt has only played in 14 games. And I know, like everybody else knows, that Brett Favre gifted that record to Strahan. But for the record, about the record, this is what T.J. Watt had to say about the record. First year or two, I used to do big individual goals, X amount of sacks, TFLs, all that stuff. But adds too much pressure you start chasing and all that stuff and now it's just trying to affect every game uh, the best that I can prepare and uh, it's been working for me so I'm not really looking at goals like that anymore just trying to be a game wrecker great answer and if the goal then is to be a game wrecker mission accomplished record or no record 17 games 16 games 15 games whatever this dude is a flat out game wrecker an absolute mother bleeper coming off the edge. Now, I'm going to get into what the hell happened to Cleveland last night in a separate take, but let me just throw this out there right now. I don't know, maybe maybe you put a hand in Watt's face. Maybe you try to get a body, 
or five or ten in front of him. Maybe somebody does something to try to stop him because it sure didn't feel like anybody was doing anything at all last night. Like, I'm no Vince Lombardi, but if you've got a rookie offensive tackle making his third career start and you've got him lining up against T.J. Watt, maybe you do something about that. Maybe you get that guy a little bit of help. Maybe you never drop back to pass. What you can't keep doing is the same exact thing and hoping it leads to a different result. It is a results business, and the result last night was T.J. Watt mugging Baker Mayfield repeatedly. And I know a lot of you want to bury Baker and want to know if I still think that he's America's quarterback or if the Browns are even America's team or if he's even the Browns quarterback, all those things. I will get to all of those things. I mean, for now, the Browns, one of the league's most disappointing teams this year, for sure. They were DOA. But Roethlisberger and the Steelers do live to fight another day. Let's get to the bottom line, right? What's most important about last night's game is it is the end of a glorious, glorious era. They don't get more reliable. They do not get more dependable. And I cannot lie. I was an enormous fan back in the day. Probably the biggest fan back in the day. And I got up this morning and I told my wife, Janet, I'm not going to cry. I will not cry today. It's sad to watch your hero leave. But all good things must come to an end. Wait. Y'all think I'm talking about Big Ben? The hell I am. I'm talking about the Blackberry. A.K.A. the Crackberry. Our beloved Crackberry. I could not get enough of that crack back in the day. Crack is whack. Today was the, quote, end of life date for Blackberries. You know, the epic phone, the classic phone, the best phone, the company announced it will no longer support the physical device. They've been a software company for a number of years, but they were still making the phone. Today it became official. We will no longer support the physical device. So all good things come to an end. And there was a time when that was the best thing ever. Not going to lie. Man, I love my Blackberry. I loved all of my Blackberries. Back then... You didn't get any more reliable than that physical keyboard, the so-called QWERTY. Adios, friend. Till we meet again. Brick breaker for life. Hashtag pin. Hashtag BBM. Who will ever forget that awesome trackball in the middle of it? The incredible, illustrious one-inch screen. The illustrious black and white one-inch screen. Shout out to the BlackBerry Curve, the Bold, the Passport, all of them. God, what a beautiful thing that was. Love that thing so much. 1-800. Remember when we all ultimately made the switch? And we lost the blinking red indicator light. I honestly was not sure how I was going to go on. You want to talk about an addiction. 
You want to talk about a dopamine blast. You want to talk about crack. When I finally did go over to the iPhone, which I said I would never do, which is hilarious in and of itself. Man, did I miss that blinking red light. What a world. What a world. Can you imagine a world where Brick Breaker was like the baddest, coolest thing ever? Like anybody would ever stop at a stoplight and not break out Brick Breaker. If you're like me, your weekend plans include kicking back and watching live sports. And it doesn't matter what sport you're watching, it's always fun to have a little action. That's why I recommend downloading the WinBet app right away. Whether you're a recreational player or a serious handicapper, WinBet is your ticket to every exciting wager. From straight bets to parlays, teasers, and any exotic proposition wager that you can dream up. The app is easy to use, and everybody knows Win is one of the biggest and best brands in the gaming industry. So get off the sidelines. Join in on the action. Download the WinBet app on Google Play or the Apple App Store today and put yourself in the game. Win with WinBet. Terms and conditions at winbet.com. You have to be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Bruce Feldman, Bruce, happy new year. Good to have you back. How are you? Happy new year, Jim. Great to be on with you. Always good to have you, Bruce. In fact, so many amazing things that I want to get to, but I got to pick my spots. So let me be careful about this. Let me start with Caleb Williams, Oklahoma quarterback, who announced that he's going to enter the transfer portal. What was your reaction when you heard that news? And then what do you think was the reaction of every head coach around the country? Well, the first part, talking to some coaches over the weekend, there was some speculation and there's some rumblings from uh, coaches who thought, hey, this is something we may be able to get in on. Uh, there was a feeling, and again, remember, Caleb Williams went through the recruiting process, so he, he knows a lot of people and a lot of coaches at different places, and his family does. Uh, not only that, you know, he went through this process where I think he, you know, his family has some advisors on this. I think I've talked to him, I, and the the word I had gotten was that he wasn't, or the family wasn't completely sold on the kind of system Oklahoma's running now, bringing in Jeff Levy. Um, even though Matt Corral played in that system and 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 had a great year, and it looked at as by a lot of people as a first round pick, uh, this was a system I, I don't know if they were completely sold on. So he's going to look around and see what his options are. I think a lot of people initially looked at it and said, okay, this is going to be a huge NIL bidding war. Uh, I don't think that was really the driving force from what I've heard in the last like couple of days. It was more about what is the system he's going to go in? What's the terminology behind it? How quickly can he hit the ground running? Bruce Feldman's joining us. All right, so assuming he finds the right system, for those who have not had the chance to see very much of him, how would you describe Williams and what kind of an impact would he have when he arrives at a new program, assuming it is a good fit? Well, I would say, use this as there's probably two, only two programs in the country who would not be interested in him to some degree, and that is Alabama, which has Bryce Young and just won the Heisman, and Ohio State which has C.J. Stroud, who, who is a redshirt freshman who just had a spectacular year in Rose Bowl. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, Caleb Williams is probably more talented than pretty much every other prospect that, you know, somebody has, and he would have two years of eligibility left before he could leave for the NFL. He's got a really good arm. 
He's not as fast as, as Kyler Murray, but he's really fast. He's got a playmaking skill, and he's very smart. And, you know, physically, you know, some of, sometimes quarterbacks come around, and it's like, look, he's a bigger kid than Bryce Young. There's a lot to like. And so I think, you know, last year, 21 touchdowns, only four interceptions. And keep in mind, this was a guy who chose to go to Oklahoma, even though Spencer Rattler was there. And at the time, People were talking about Spencer Rattler like he could be first pick in the draft. So this is a guy who did not shy away from walking into a competitive environment. And I think people are also kind of intrigued by that aspect of his, of his uh, personality and competitiveness as well. So he's going to be as big a free agent, if you want to use that term, in terms of you know, the college football transfer portal, as you're going to get. Bruce Feldman's joining us. I think that is the right term to use. Now, he, of course, was recruited by and played for Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. So do you expect to see him at USC, or is it more likely that he would go someplace else, if you had to guess? USC has got to be a strong consideration. I mean, he wanted to play for Lincoln Riley two years ago when he committed there. He played very well. Now look, Lincoln Riley's now at USC. He's got a good young quarterback there in Jackson Dart who had some strong moments as a freshman this past year. But I don't know how – like if, if you're Caleb Williams and you're convinced Lincoln Riley is the, is the, per, is the best person to, to further develop uh, Caleb Williams to be an NFL prospect. And look, Lincoln Riley has three starting quarterbacks right now that he's produced in the last five years in the NFL, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and Jalen Hurts. So, I mean, that's a pretty strong track record. And honestly, I mean, I don't think he's going to – you know, the idea of, of coming out to L.A., the question is, USC is not very good right now. I mean, they, uh, my TV crew did their last game. It was against, one of their last games, I guess, against UCLA. And this program has some big issues on the roster. They're not good at all. Uh, so you're going to have to go hard into the transfer portal. But if you get Caleb Williams, you're going to get a lot of guys who probably are going to want to play with him. So the question is, I mean, this is not like him going to Oklahoma where that team was competing for playoff spots. It was legit top five caliber team. I mean, USC is a bit of ways, but because of the transfer portal, and it, look, this guy's really, really good. He can, he's going to make a difference wherever he goes. So I think, you know, USC is hot. He's got to be high on the list. I would think is um, just depends on where his relationship is right now and with Lincoln Riley. Bruce Feldman's joining us. I think those are all really valid points. What about this, though, Bruce? If USC is not that good, and right now they're not that good, what if, could you see Georgia deciding we're not sold on JT Daniels? We do offer you an opportunity to win big right now. If your team, Caleb Williams, whether it's his dad, his family, his advisors, whatever, if they look at those two situations, which one do you think looks better for them if they're all about developing him as a pro prospect, USC or Georgia? So it's an interesting question because Georgia definitely has better players around. I mean, the tight end there, who's, by the way, from Northern California, is a freshman. Brock Bowers, a fantastic player. I mean, they have everything, and they have big-time running backs. And, you know, you're not going to throw the ball 45 times a game. I mean, you're not going to probably throw it anywhere near as much as you will in Lincoln Riley's offense. Um, you know, but then there's that other part of it. Like, you look at, at the Georgia quarterbacks, you know, the best prospect who's come out of Georgia really didn't come out of Georgia. He left Georgia to go to Ohio State, and that was Justin Fields. So I don't know. Now, granted, 
a different, you know, Todd Munkin is the offense coordinator. He's coached in the NFL. He's a really good play caller. He hasn't been there that long to have the track record of Georgia developing quarterbacks. So, I, you know, I think it's going to be what Caleb Williams and what Caleb Williams' dad feel like is the best fit for him. I mean, does he look at at UCLA and say, well, there's an there's a coach there who had, you know, turned Nick Foles into a, you know, into a big-time quarterback in the NFL? Is that, you know, coach in the NFL, is that something he's, he's going to consider? I, I don't know. You know, when he when the family looks at all this and looks at their options, I think it really is going to be so much about who can develop him best to make him ready for the NFL. And I think he's going to look at guys' track records on what they've done, who they've coached, and where they've coached. Bruce Feldman's breaking this down for us. So, Bruce, when you look at this, I mean, is this all kind of a one-off or something that was brought on by Lincoln Riley's departure from Oklahoma? Or is this a glimpse into the future of college football with the transfer portal? I think it's all the above. I think that this isn't isn't a one-off just in terms of, like, in a lot of ways this is kind of the perfect storm because you had a guy who, unlike a lot of the NIL stuff, you know, who is not, okay, this guy was a five-star and he was evaluated as such. No, this guy is a proven commodity. He had a terrific freshman year at a high level. And then his coach who he went to play for left to go to another high-profile program. And the guy who came in, you know, didn't quite run the system that this quarterback wants to play in. Um, or at least that's, that's from what I have my understanding of the situation. But I think you're going to see plenty other – you know, you're already seeing this where guys are evaluating constantly. So there's a domino effect. And as it relates to the transfer portal, this isn't like, oh, you signed a letter and you're, bind, you're bound to it. You may have just posted uh, a picture of a school or a logo and said, I'm going there. Well, until you're in classes, you can, you're free to move. I mean, so look at it this way. So there's another big-time quarterback who was in the transfer portal and played it at UCF, Dylan Gabriel, put up huge numbers there. Dylan Gabriel committed to go to UCLA a couple of weeks ago to transfer there. And was I, my understanding was he was actually supposed to start classes on Monday. Well, Dylan Gabriel played for the offensive coordinator at UCF. Jeff Levy played in that same system, at least, and is very familiar with it. Well, now that system is at Oklahoma. He was like, hey, I'm not going to go to UCLA. I want to go to to Oklahoma under the thinking that, hey, Caleb Williams isn't going to be there. And so this is a good situation for me because there's really good skill talent around there. And uh, that's the dynamic I think you have of how – I don't want to use the term how volatile it is, but how frenetic I think this this all is. And look, there's going to be a lot of big time, you know, NIL situations that are going to come about. And for forever before this, college athletes were not were not getting paid at all in that regard beyond free education. And I think so now the pendulum is is swinging in a different direction. And I think a lot of people are like just trying to figure out where is this all headed. And I don't think I don't think the train is going to go in the other direction now. No, I don't think so either. Like, Bruce, I think that a lot of people are trying to figure out where it's all headed, and still, incredibly, some people have issue with it. For instance, given that head coaches, Bruce, are able to leave on a moment's notice, do you personally have any issue with players being able to leave without having to sit out a year at their new school? 
I don't. I mean, because, look, Brian Kelly is an excellent coach. He left Notre Dame to go to LSU, and Notre Dame technically still could have been a playoff team, right? If, if there was one other, they were the number five team. And so, you know, you're, one thing that you hear from coaches constantly, and this isn't just Brian Kelly. There's a lot of coaches who I, I would, you know, are in this camp where it's like they constantly are talking about finish and all in and all those things. And there, we've seen plenty of examples of coaches who don't, ha- you know, have, have made choices that aren't in line with that, right? I mean, you know, like Mike Leach went on a rant, I don't know, a month ago or so about his frustration with players not playing in bowl games. But there was a point in, in Mike's coaching career where he left you know, and wasn't part of a staff that was going to be in a bowl game. I mean, this this just happens. And I think that, remember, the coaches are the ones who've been making the millions. And, you know, they're the ones that the kids commit to. And so I don't begrudge any um, any student athlete because of, of their circumstances and also how fleeting it can all be, right? So I, I don't you know, not to go down a different track, but like, you know, when it comes to players who are either they're an opt out of bowl games or not, it's like, so, you know, I, I think people are trying to make it generational. I just think there's a lot of other right now, more options now than there, than there were before. And I think people look at things a little differently. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing at all. I just think it's like all of a sudden now people have different perspective on it. Agreed, but in defense, Bruce, uh, Brian Kelly, he did have to do what's best for his family. In season or out, family. family first, Bruce, you know this. I don't know where that I, – I, I, I thought – I was like, that is one of the more puzzling things I've seen of the, of the last month of the coaching cycle or whatever. Um, the last decade. Yeah, it was just kind of look. He's a really good coach. He's won wherever he's been, and um, I don't know. That was a that was that was a very bizarre moment in it. I think even his own family thought that was weird. <laughs> so listen, really quickly, we amidst all of this, Bruce, we do have a national championship game to be played. You were talking about this recently on your podcast. How big is the talent gap between Alabama and Georgia? Ooh, um, I don't think it's. You know, look, I think. Alabama probably has the best player on the field, and that's 31, Will Anderson. I think Georgia probably has a bunch of other guys who are just a notch below, but they probably, you know, may have a, you know, like have a better collection of players on the defense, right? I think, you know, Alabama has one really good running back. Georgia has three. You know, I would give a big edge at quarterback, right? Someone one of Heisman, you know, of this year. I think Stetson Bennett's really good. He's a very underrated player, but he's not Bryce Young. And I think Georgia's offensive line is better. I don't think, you know, they both recruit from the same pool. I mean, these are clearly the two most talented teams in the country. So Alabama beat them handily the first time. I don't think that's going to happen again. But, you know, like, look, I wouldn't underestimate Nick Saban. He's the greatest coach in the history of college football. And, you know, his guys are really comfortable in this setting, probably more so than anybody. And Kirby Smart, as talented as teams have been, he's never beaten this guy and he's never beaten his teams. So, Bruce, leave us with this thought. Like, everybody wants dynasties. Everybody wants to see greatness and domination. But at the same time, could you make an argument that Alabama's greatness does hurt the sport and that people are sick and tired of seeing them? 
Yeah, I think part of it, Jim, is people, like, when they played LSU and it was a wild back-and-forth game, I think, you know, Alabama helped make, you know, it was a big part of why that was what it was. I think, honestly, people are more sick and tired of Alabama blowing teams out than they are of, of being there, right? So, you know, there's been some some really, really good games. But I think at the same time, it's just like, you know, people like knew, but I think if you had ended up with a Cincinnati-Michigan final instead of the all-SEC one, I'm guessing the TV ratings would not have shot through the roof. I think it's just people are – you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people will tune in to they to root against Alabama just because they are the standard, right? Nick Saban is so, you know, so well known for what he has been. But at the same time, you know, I, I think it's just hard for people to find new storylines. But I, I think they need somebody else, whether it's Georgia. You know, I think people knew Davos won titles. I think there needs you know, I think they wanted to see really competitive games. And in those semifinals, we almost never get competitive games. Never. And I think this time we will. I agree with you. I don't think they're going to see a repeat of what happened the last time the two of them met, at least not in terms of a blowout. He is a reporter for Fox Sports. He is the National College Football Insider as well for The Athletic. The man behind the annual Freaks list for The Athletic co-host of the Audible podcast, and he is a best-selling author. He is Bruce Feldman. Bruce, thanks for spending so much time. That was outstanding. Always good to have you on the show, and I appreciate the relationship. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake or eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Why Old Trapper? Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef very seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Who wants dried, tough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness, teriyaki, peppered, and hot and spicy for those of you who like to take things up a notch. Next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? Browns HC, Kevin Stefanski told reporters that Baker Mayfield is indeed out Sunday. Mayfield season is over. A couple of thoughts. So Baker Mayfield also had said that he was going, after that game, that he was going to need off-season shoulder surgery. You wonder if maybe, look, I see Baker working. You could, if you're jaded or you're a cynic or even you're pragmatic or you're realist, maybe you would say the guy's trying to be out there because he's still playing for a contract. He wants that extension. I would argue that game last night was not going to get him an extension that he probably is not going to get right now anyway. So why was the guy out there? And in his defense, I think that he would argue that, hey, I want to. I don't want to abandon the fight. I'm competitive. I want to win. I think that I still help the team more than I hurt the team. I want to be out there. I want to play. I want to be able to lead from the front. And I've not been able to do that this year. And I'm not going to quit on my teammates. I want to play. I, I could see that. I mean, that's his mindset. 
And I don't fault that guy for wanting to be out there. I could turn that on its head and say, sometimes you need to protect the player from himself. And how about this? You know, where was Nick Chubb last night? So there was Kevin Stefanski seemingly intimating that he was kind of banged up, that there was an issue with Nick Chubb and his ribs. And maybe they don't want him out there in a game that really doesn't mean anything if he's kind of banged up. Okay, I understand that. But you had no problem putting your quarterback out there in a game that didn't mean anything, and he was getting the crap beaten out of him. So what does that mean? That Nick Chubb is way more of an asset? You're more concerned about him than you are Baker Mayfield? Does that mean you've given up on Baker Mayfield already? Like, what was that guy doing out there? Like, you clearly could not protect him. And he was getting the crap beat out of him. So why was he still out there? And if you're Baker Mayfield, again, I understand why he wanted to be out there. But is there any part of him was thinking now a day later, after he did get the hell beat out of him, for who, for what? We were already eliminated. So what am I doing putting myself out there when they've got a rookie trying to block on T.J. Watt and they're not getting this guy any help? And yet here I am trying to make plays. What are we doing here? You know, I wonder. And then I thought the comment that he made about when I make the decision as to whether or not I want to play in the finale, I'm going to get with my agent. He didn't say I'm going to talk to my coach. He said I'm going to get with my agent and my family. Doesn't that seem like there's kind of a disconnect there? Family. Family. So I wonder about that as well. Here's something else I wonder. I wonder if Baker's dad is well-versed in Final Cut. Like, can he edit? Can he splice? Will he go like Odell's pop? And if not, do the actual splicing, but repost somebody who did. Are they going to show all those plays where protection broke down and Baker got blasted? He was sacked nine times. Now, again, I'm not saying that some of that or a chunk of that was not his fault. I'm not saying that he didn't hold on to the ball too long. I'm not saying that he didn't try to force the ball in places where he shouldn't have tried to force the ball. Baker had a bad year. But I do want to say Baker played through a lot of stuff. And I'm not sure how many injuries he had exactly or the extent of the injuries, but he clearly was not right. And he suffered that injury, that torn labrum, in the second game of the year. So he tried to grind through the entire year with a torn labrum. So I wonder if anybody in the fam is well-versed in Final Cut. And they can start to splice things on his behalf. And let's be clear about this, too. They had a bad year. And what I saw last night was pretty heinous. America's team in prime time, where they belong except they did not show up that way last night. That was not America's team performance. They did not play America's team football. But then again, they haven't all year long. So the question, what the hell happened to the Cleveland Browns? I mean, seriously, what the hell happened to them? And not just last night, but the entire year. That was a team that won a playoff game last year and a team that began this season as one of the odds-on favorites to go to the Super Bowl. A team that was knocking on the door of a Super Bowl even a year ago. This team looks nothing like that team. This team feels nothing like that team. This team was eliminated from the postseason with two games to go. So again, you know, should Baker have been out there last night to get the hell beat out of him? Last year, they had an actual identity. Like, if you, 
You were going into their house. They were going to punch you in the face and step on your head until you gave up. This year, I still am not sure what their identity is. I think last night summed that up perfectly. Like, for instance, they're facing a Steeler team that cannot stop the run. Simply cannot stop the run. They went into last night having allowed 100-plus rushing yards in eight straight games. They can't stop the run. So what's Cleveland's game plan? Pretty simple, right? Hit them with some good bleep. Don't get hit. Walk out with a pocket full of cash. Go in there. Hit them with some good Don't get hit. Come home with a pocket full of cash. Right. Good plan. Except that was not the plan. There was no good bleep. It was all bad bleep. Nick Chubb had 12 carries. And again, Baker was sacked nine times. I don't want to go all stat nerd on anybody, but if your quarterback has nearly as many sacks as your star running back has carries, that's not a good sign. In fact, it's a horrible sign. You know what else is a bad sign? When that same quarterback completes one of his first 11 passes. So it's not like this guy was dropping back, having time, surveying the field, going through his progressions, having a lot of success. In fact, quite the contrary. His passes were getting batted down time and time again. So there was no moving the pocket. There were no calls to get him out on the edge. There was no way to get him away from the long arms of Pittsburgh's rushers. So certainly he deserves blame, but there is a lot of blame to go around. A lot of blame. The players, the coaches, everybody. I know a lot of you want to come in here and say, yeah, Rome, what do you think? Of course he had five passes batted down, man. It's because he's small. He's short. It's his size. Yeah, well, let me tell you something. This guy didn't shrink overnight. He's always been that height. He's one at that height. And in the meantime, maybe you scheme around it. Maybe you don't just keep having him try to fire and throw his way through it when it's not working on that night. Like, how bad of a night was it? The best throw of the entire night was Jadavian Clowney throwing a shoe. Throws outside, caught by Claypool, spinning at the 40. Goes to the 35, running on the numbers and brought down. Clowney got him, and the flag thrown one. Another flag thrown, got to the 33 of the Browns. Picks up three on the play. Somebody's shoe has come off. Flags have been thrown. A lot of moving parts. Now, it's just dumb. One of the defenders finds somebody's shoe in his hand. Instead of just dropping it, he throws it. Unsportsmanlike conduct. Defense, number 90. 15-yard penalty. Automatic first down. It was Clowney. Yeah, so he picks up the shoe and tosses it 10 yards. It's just dumb, undisciplined football right there. I don't know, Kurt. I mean, it was a dime. It was a frozen rope. My man could spin it. Now, you're right, Kurt. I agree. That was dumb. It came after a third down stop. It gave the Steelers 15 yards and a first down on a drive where they eventually scored a TD. So, yeah, that was pretty stupid. Or, as Kevin Stefanski said. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, you can't do that. I mean, you're hurting the team. It's... uh... It's crazy. Uh, not not smart. Um, you know, he, he felt like he was just, I'll let him answer. Yeah, man, they're coming off the rails completely. Completely. Baker wants to discuss with his agent and family whether or not to play in the finale. And Stefanski's just flat out, and he's right. It's not smart. And then he caught himself and said, yeah, I think I'll let him discuss it. I mean, that, but then again, Stefanski... He's not without blame either. 
especially when you consider that game plan, because that was a disaster. Let's be clear about this. This is Kevin Stefanski we're talking about, not Joe Judge. Stefanski, the coach of the year last season. He and his team were so in sync last season that they could win even when he was not there. They would scheme you up, and they would beat you up. And this year, and last night, there was none of that. I know that Stefanski did not forget how to coach. I know the Browns were beat up this year physically, but man, that was ugly. Ugly. And again, I understand that Nick Chubb was apparently banged up at some point last night, but so was Baker Mayfield. And that didn't stop the Browns from letting him go out there and be T.J. Watt's tackling dummy. So again, you want to protect Chubb, but you didn't really care about your quarterback. And I'm not saying the quarterback's not to blame. I'm saying there's lots of blame to go around. And now a message from Discover about rewards. If you're a loyal credit card customer, you should be rewarded for your loyalty, preferably with something that's useful, like cash back match, for instance. Discover matches all the cash back that you have earned at the end of your first year. Finally, rewards that make sense. Discover, exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. Andre Roberts is my guest. Andre, good to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Joe? Doing great. Doing great. Good to have you back. So let me uh, talk about the performance you're coming off of in that win over Denver. Can you take me back to the fourth quarter? You fielded the kickoff a yard deep in the end zone. What did you see at that point? And then what do you remember about how that return unfolded? Um, yeah. Uh, B-Mag, uh, Brandon McManus, he's a uh, really good kicker in this league and been doing it for a long time. But unfortunately, um, for the Denver's kickoff team, he mishit. He mishit that one, and it was low time, um, and it wasn't too deep in the end zone. So um, I was going to take that out and give it an opportunity to go. And uh, my guys did a great job blocking. Obviously, I started out to the right, and um, saw some double teams stuck, uh, stuck to the guys, and just ran off butts and made made a couple cuts and finished it in the end zone. Andre Roberts joining us. I'm watching it again, man. You hit those afterburners and you were gone. Now your teammates were so fired up after that return. What's it mean to you to see the kind of impact a play like that has on your teammates and then also how demoralizing it is to the opposition? It's huge, man, because we've had some big returns this year. And, you know, we always say in our meetings, you know, we're, we're close. We have one guy here, one guy there, you know, uh, make a guy miss or one key block and, and we'll score, you know, we'll score a touchdown. So, you know, for it to come to fruition in that game, it was just, you know, nice to see. And then, you know, all your teammates coming out to celebrate with you, uh, it, it's pretty special um, for the last game of the, the regular season in, uh, in Charter Stadium. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, demoralizing for a team that, you know, thinks they have a chance in the game. Um, I think they were down around 13, 14 points at that point uh, after coming off a score, thinking I'm sure uh, they just have to get a stop and it's a one-score game. Just being able to do that and uh, try to to put a stake in it in the fourth quarter uh, felt real good. Andre Roberts back on the program. So a couple of weeks back, special teams coordinator Darius Swinton said that you were one block away from taking one of the house. He loves the sense of urgency that you run with. How would you describe the mentality you have when you get the ball in your hands? Yeah, I mean, that's how I run. Um, 
soon as I get the ball, I try to get get the top speed as fast as possible because, um, as our guys know, it's all about spacing and timing, and uh, that that hole closes real fast on kickoff return. And if you don't get to it, you're gonna get hit pretty hard. But if you get to it and you get a little daylight, uh, you can do something special. And uh, you know, we've been talking about that since since I became an LA Charger and. Uh, I'm glad we're on the same page with that, just being aggressive and hitting the hole downhill. I want to talk to you about how you became an L.A. Charger in a moment, but to that point, like you're more than a decade into your career, but as Swinton points out, you've hit more than 21 miles per hour this season. You and I have talked about your conditioning in the past, how you take care of your body, but how do you explain maintaining that elite speed after so many years in the league and taking so many hits? Um, I think it's just that that off-season training, um, going hard um, in the off-season every year, uh, training like you're a rookie. And um, I look, learned that from uh, my guy Larry Fitz, and uh, I've been doing that every off-season and, and trying to maintain everything that I have and, and keep my speed. Yeah, Larry Fitz, like, how did he maintain that mindset when he was going to go down as one of the greatest and will go down as one of the greatest to ever do it? How would a guy like that maintain that mindset? Um, I mean, I think it's about how you're raised and how you're brought up in the game and somebody before you, you know, teaching you the way. And I was fortunate enough to be drafted by Arizona and, and be taught that way. And I felt like I had a, you know, a, a working mindset and a great work, work ethic. But uh, when you got a guy that's playing at a high level like Larry Fitz, do it for such a long time and, you know, understand his mindset, uh, you just feel like, you know, everybody can't do what he can do, but uh, the mindset doesn't change and, and that work ethic uh, doesn't change. Andre Roberts is joining us. So like everybody in that sport, everybody in that league knows that it's a business. It can be a ruthless business, but everybody knows mm-hmm. business is business. It's a business. <laughs> Easy to say that until you become a part of the business, right? So when you were released by the Texans back in October, what was that moment like for you? It's funny you say that because I tell him that all the time. You was, you're with one team your whole career. Uh, but uh, for me, um, I mean, I feel like I still had a lot of juice left. And it was just the wrong situation for me uh, in Houston. So um, when I had an opportunity to become a free agent and uh, try to select a team, um, you know, the Chargers were the right fit for me at the time. I mean, what about that? Like, how, it's it's one thing to become a free agent and get an opportunity, but to do so midseason, to leave a situation like the one you were with, the Texans, and then to sign with the Chargers, and they were fired up. They wanted you pretty badly. What was it like to go from a team struggling just to compete to a team battling for a playoff speed, uh, spot? What was it like to go to a team and a new culture and situation midstream? Yeah, I mean, I was just excited, as excited as them. Um, to do that, uh, go to to a team with someone like Justin Herbert and um, the offense, the explosive offense, and a uh, young coach, and, and and what they're trying to build the right way there is just you know is nice to you know it's just it's just nice to go to is a breath of fresh air, and uh, I'm 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 sure I was just excited as they were. Dude, I'm sorry to say this. I'm going to editorialize. When you say that the situation with the Texans was not right for you, I'm going to argue that the situation for the Texans or with the Texans is not right for anybody. And the (laughs) fact that these guys think that they didn't need you is pretty hilarious to me. That's my editorial comment in the middle of the uh, interview. Listen, you've been around the league long. (laughs) I'll say it. Even if you can't, I can. 
So you mentioned Herbert. You've been around the league a long, long time. You know what it's like and what it takes to be a great quarterback. What are your thoughts when you see and play with Justin Herbert? Yeah, I mean, the same thing you guys see, I'm sure, is, is he's something special. Um, he's got the arm talent. He can make every throw. Um, he's just going to learn and get better. He obviously broke broke a nice record um, this weekend uh, with Phillip Rivers throwing, throwing so many touchdowns in, in, in 16 games. So he'll break, I'm sure, a little bit more of that next game. But, um, yeah, he's special, man. He's you know, as as a returner and, you know, sometimes a receiver, you know, but more often as a returner, you just want to get the ball back to that guy and see him go to work because it's a pretty sight to see. Andre Roberts joining us. All right, so you've got a big one. You've got the Raiders coming up on Sunday. Everything on the line. If you win, you're in. So I'm curious, how do you approach a game like that? Do you just try to treat that like it's any other game, or do you acknowledge, you know what, it is different. The stakes are different. The stage is different. Do you try to dial it up and find another gear? What's the mindset and approach? I think we all have to find another gear and and know how important this game is and any future games that we have because it's win or go home and um, you know, like you said this past week, it's just having that higher sense of urgency in everything you do. And I think if, if we go in with that mindset, prepare like, you know, what's at stake is what's at stake. It's, it's win or go home. Um, I think we'll go into the game well prepared. I love it. What a huge game that is. He is a two-time All-Pro, a three-time Pro Bowler, a wide receiver, a return specialist, coming off that enormous game in the win over Denver. Andre Roberts, my guest. Andre, appreciate you. Appreciate having you back on the show. Thanks for making time for us during this very big week for you, I'm sure. Great to have you back. Appreciate you. Always happy to be on. So what I'm getting at is it's not just the first week of the year. It really is the start of Hell Week, the ultimate Hell Week. Because thanks to both of them winning, they will face one another Sunday night in Vegas for a playoff spot. So we can throw it all the way back for an entire week of Chargers rule, Raiders suck, good night now. I mean, again, it's it's awfully early in the year. You know what I'm like? I got to admit, like, I feel like I'm still in pretty good shape. I feel like I still have a lot uh, still left in the tank. But there is a part of me, if I'm being real, I'm kind of like that guy... They used to attack the rim all game, every game. But then when you get up there a little bit, you can still throw it down, but you got to pick your spots, right? you got to pick your spots. I'm not the guy looking to attack the rim every single time and hang from the rim and do what I used to do. I need to load manage my trachea. I need to load manage my esophagus. I need to load manage my throat. It's really early in a critical year. So I pick my spots, and I'm not even sure this is a good idea. But do I really want to do this this early in the year? Do I really want to risk injury to my trachea with 360 days still in front of me? I mean, the answer is no, I don't. Load management for my pipes. However... We do have Hell Week. We do have a playoff appearance or spot hanging in the balance. So what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to do the job. Do your job. No days off. Chargers, Raiders, last game, playoff, spot hanging in the balance. Let me start with you, Charger fan. 
Show me your lightning bolt. Charger fan, are you kidding me? You control your own destiny, Charger fan. Charger fan, your game is flexed into Sunday night football. Does this thing work? Is there not a Charger fan alive? Is there one with a pulse? Are you going to let Raider fan, who's probably out on parole, are you going to let Raider fan take over your show, Charger fan? Sing it with me. L.A. Super. Anyway, whatever the song is. Pick up the freaking phone. Oh, and while you're at it, pick up the margarine. That's right. Pick up the phone and pick up that margarine. Then grab some bread. Because this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Did you see what I did there? Ha 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 ha. Pick up the margarine. Slice the bread. Butter the bread the hell up. And you know what you need for that? A butter knife. Butter knife here, and I'm not going anywhere. Poway, talk to me about toast. Sourdough toast, white toast, margarine, butter, butter with a knife, butter knife. Wheat bread is ass. It's for wimps. San Clemente, grab that dinner roll. Split it in half, and don't be rude. Pass the bread basket to the ladies at the table first. Let me tell you something. If you're not going to say it, I will. The Raiders are bleeping croissants. It's time to tear them the hell up. But put butter on them first. It's hell week. All week. And the Raiders are in for hell. Because it's hell week. And I'm the butter knife. Everybody into the margarine. Everybody into the pattern. But stay the hell away from my sourdough because it's my sourdough. Ciabatta, where are you? Rye bread, pick up the phones. Pretzel buns, are you even bread? Get those crunchy breadsticks out my bread basket right now. I will stab you in the heart with me, the butter knife. I am the butter knife and I cut through all the butter and margarine. Land of Lakes, bitch. Crock butter or whatever they call that crap. It's hell week. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. Michael Hoyt is my guest. Michael, it's great to have you on. How are you? Jim, thanks for having me. My man, you have an amazing journey, which I want to get into, and I will momentarily. But let me start right here, Michael. You've won five straight. You're heading to the postseason. You've got a chance to win the division on Sunday. How would you then describe the mood and the vibe around the team this week? You know, we always talk about wanting to peak at the right time, and you always want to play your best football in December. And I think, you know, we're right on pace for that. Um, You know, we've obviously had our adversity throughout the season, but I think that's good to – you know, we can build off that and um, we can learn from those mistakes. So I think the morale of the team's looking good. We're excited for the game this Sunday. 
And then uh, once playoffs starts, you know, time to turn it up a notch. Michael Hoyt joining us. All right, so in terms of the adversity, going into November, the team was 7-1. and one. Everything was going really well, and then you hit that rough stretch where you had a three-game losing streak, but then you turned it around and you ripped off five in a row. How were you guys able to turn it around the way you have? You know, I think we got the right type of guys in the locker room where, you know, you go study the tape and you figure out what corrections you need to make. Um, and then, you know, I, I think we work really well together in practice on – making sure that we do all the little things right and are just growing as a team and being more connected. So I think everybody handled the adversity really well. Um, and it, it's been cool to watch too, just uh, how, you know, a little bit of that adversity sort of brought the team closer together. And, you know, now we're playing better than we ever have. Rams defensive lineman Michael Hoyt is joining us. I mentioned I was anxious to get to your journey, so let's get into this. When you consider everything you've gone through, for instance, you played your college ball at Brown. You said midway through your junior season, you started to think that you might have an opportunity to play in the NFL. What was that moment like for you personally, and what were the indicators that led you to believe that you would have a shot? During so during my time, um, you know, I was elected captain my junior year, and then um, I believe it was uh, my D line coach at the time, and you know, he sort of sat me down and said, "Hey, like you've got a real shot here." Um, you know, but if you want it, it's something that you're going to have to put your full focus into. Um, and then from there, it was conversations with my parents and, you know, I started uh, getting some feelers from agents and, you know, light conversations just to see what was possible and what was out there. Um, you know, but then it was sort of that decision um, that I think a lot of kids who play Ivy League football have to make if they have a shot at the next level is, you know, do you pursue your career in football or you pursue another career? And for me, um, you know, I was going to play football until somebody told me I couldn't. And, you know, obviously the NFL is pretty hard to turn down. So it was put all the eggs in the NFL basket and let's go do it and go do it properly. And, you know, thankfully it worked out because um, my last two years it, well, with the Rams has just been a dream come true. And it's been everything that I've ever wanted it to be. It's really cool. Michael Hoy joining us. Let's be very clear about this, though. To your point, if you're an Ivy League player, you have options. You had other options. You had good options. But as you were getting ready for the draft, so you make the decision, all right, I'm going to try and play this thing out and I'm going to play as long as I possibly can. And so the dream is officially dead if, in fact, that happens. But then you're getting ready for the draft and gyms and facilities are closing and you've got the pandemic. Like, how did you stay in shape? What were you using for weights? Where were you lifting? Um, so this is actually a great story. Um, so my pro day was supposed to be in April of 2020. Obviously, very beginning of the pandemic, everything shuts down. And I'm in, uh, on Brown's campus. And, you know, the weight room there had been shut down. Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, where I'd been doing my pro day training, had been shut down. They were even closing some of the public fields and parks. So uh, my roommate at the time, Emerson Logie, um, he was a tight end for us at Brown. Um, it was just us two in the house, and we put together um, basically the heaviest objects we could find, which would be backpacks full of rocks or, you know, old kegs that we found from college uh, parties, and we would just squat them, and we would lift them, and we would do bicep curls, and we would do everything that we could um, to stay in shape as best, you know, you know we could. Um, and then, you know, with the pro day being canceled, I just went out to a field and I had a couple of teammates of Brown film all the different workouts I wanted to do and put together a pro day, uh, via iMovie. I just made it all on my computer and, you know, it was the first sort of experience with the transition of 
work from home and it was best I could do pro day from home. Dude, when somebody says to me, I have a great story, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. That is incredible. I mean, that, that's that's legendary. Like, what exactly did you put on tape? When you learn to cut that tape yourself and then put that out and send that out, what did you put on film? Um, so I recorded 40 time. I recorded, you know, the L drill, some of the different D-line workouts that I would have been doing if, in fact, I had an actual pro day. And then just to make sure all my bases were covered, too, um, I was running routes as a tight end. Um, I was showing myself cut, um, just basically showing a whole package of, you know, what athleticism I can bring to the table. Um, and then had that sent out via my agent to as many coaches as possible and really trying to leave no stone unturned because, you know, when it came down to it, um, this was obviously an unprecedented time and nobody knew exactly what it was going to look like and how guys were going to get exposure and, I wasn't just going to leave that up to chance. I was going to make sure that I got some eyeballs on me. Michael Hoyt, incredible story. So it all pays off. Then after the 2020 draft, you signed with the Rams. In fact, because it paid off, what did it mean to you to sign with L.A. and see all that hard work pay off and come together? What was that like? You know, it it was definitely a validating moment in that, you know, I've been playing football since third grade. um, And, Everybody who plays football at some point, you know, you hear the statistics that, you know, 1% go and play college football and then 1% of those guys make it onto the NFL. And so, you know, the, you know, the odds are low, but I don't ever think you're going to be wrong betting on yourself. And that's just always what I've done is that, you know, I think I've developed the work ethic and, you know, the attitude that if there's something out there that I really want, like I'm going to go pursue it with everything that I have. Um, And if it works out awesome. And if it doesn't, you know, I can, you know, I can live with that. Um, and that's just the mentality that got me here, and it's the mentality that's going to keep me here. All right, so clearly it's not surprising to you. You knew that this was a possibility, but I'm really curious. You've gone from playing for a two-win Brown team to playing for a Rams team that's got future Hall of Famers, and you're playing in front of 70,000 fans. How would you describe that transition? What's that been like? Um, you know, you got to grow up quickly when, you're, when you tra- make a transition like that. Um, at the end of the day, you know, football is still football. Um, but there's definitely moments, you know, when you're running out at SoFi Stadium, the crowd's roaring and they've got the smoke um, and obviously the giant Oculus, um, you know, Jumbotron. And, you know, it, it's definitely a special moment that, you know, you look around and you used to appreciate how far you've really come in this journey, you know. But then you spend time with guys like Aaron Donald and some of these great players that we have just on the defense and on the team as a whole. And then you you start to put into perspective how much further you still have to go growing as a professional, growing as a player, um, and just how much work actually goes into playing and sustaining football at a really high level. So, you know, it's a little bit of both. It's, you know, appreciation for how far I've come and excitement about how much further the journey is to go. Michael Hoy joining me for a few more moments. I was going to ask you about Aaron Donald. Like, you spent the first year on the practice squad, and I know without knowing, I know that you were obviously going to get as much as you possibly could out of that. I know you spent some time going to school on Donald and trying to learn from him. What have you taken away from watching him and watching him prepare? And then how would you explain what makes him so unique and special? So he just brings an unbelievable attitude and mentality when it comes to playing football. You know, if you watch the practice tape, you know, everybody breaks down the game tape and sees how incredible he is and all the plays that he makes. But what I found the most interesting is when you watch practice, he does it in practice too. And it's 
the practice preparation that's just turning into game reality. Um, and so, you know, he has made the decision that he's going to be the best player on the field every time he steps onto the field, whether that's practice, walkthrough, or game time. Um, and so that's something that I think, you know, I can really pick up on that if you learn to play like that, um, especially in practice and in walkthroughs, you know, it translates to the game. Um, and, you know, what makes him so great is that he's just got an unbelievable skill set of size, size, speed, strength, and then the preparation that goes into his, you know, weekly routines, how he breaks down offensive linemen, how he attacks certain guys, what, um, you know, the different ways that he's going to attack different styles of blocks. Um, you know, it, it's just a relentless pursuit of, um, you know, him trying to chase down quarterbacks and chase down running backs. So, you know, it, it's been really fun to watch and it's been really great to learn from. What an awesome answer. I love that phrase, practice preparation turns into game reality. Michael, that's, one last uh, thought. That's a, McVay, that's a McVayism for you. He's, uh, that's uh, one of his you know, favorite terms. Give me another one. What's another McVayism that has kind of resonated with you or sticks with you or he likes to go to? Um, I, you know, one of my favorites is that uh, we compete with our schemes, but we win with our people. And I think, you know, we've got a really good culture of, you know, building good people all the way from, you know, players, coaches, but then into the, you know, other, everything else that goes into making the Rams who they are. And that, you know, that's strength staff and training and marketing and just everything that goes into the Rams. I think, you know, we've got a really good core team top to bottom which I think is really important for these, you know, professional football teams. So, Michael, like you're a professional football player. You're obviously a, a very thoughtful guy, very bright guy. Generally, when coaches go to those things, those <clears throat> things they say, those things they do, generally in your experience, do they resonate with the locker room, part of the locker room, all the locker room? I'm sure it depends on the coach itself, but does that stuff work in that locker room? I think it can. I think, you know, there's certain situations where, you know, you can learn things and, um, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason. It's because they're true more times than they're not. Um, and, you know, different ones resonate with different people, you know. And so for me, um, when I really think longer term, I think some of those things help me, um, you know, keep things in perspective. And, you know, that's, that's what works for me. And, you know, some guys will take them to heart. Some guys won't. But at the end of the day, whether you really believe in it or not, the, you know, the best of the best, they might even do it without even knowing that they're doing it. One last thought. I could talk to you or anybody at your level about mindset and mentality all day long. I, I can't get enough of that stuff. Now, some of the stories that are about you are legendary. I mean, you're about the work and about the process and about the preparation, but not only football. Apparently, you were also a calculus tutor. You taught yourself magic tricks, and you picked up the guitar and drums, and I could go on and on. One of your teammates in college said, he's somebody who does everything at 100%, and by everything, I mean everything, quote, end of quote. Is that true? And if so, where does that come from? Yeah, I mean, my pretty much my whole life, I, I think, you know, my biggest skill is that I'm just, you know, a good learner. And so when I get interested in something, I can really sink my teeth into it. And, you know, I tend to pick things up pretty quickly. Um, but I also just like, you know, learning new things and trying out different skills. And, you know, whenever it, when it goes back to the calculus tutoring at Brown, you know, that, you know, it helps turn the, keep the lights on, um, you know, a little extra spending money in the pocket. And, you know, I felt it was a good way to help out the teammates during my time there because the introductory calculus classes there, you know, a lot of guys, you know, struggle to pick up some of those concepts. And, uh, you know, that's historically been a difficult class. 
Um, and so if I was able to help guys, you know, get through it and that made our football team better, um, you know, I think that's sort of a win-win for everybody. I, I agree with you. I think the calculus historically has been a difficult class. I can remember struggling with pre-algebra. I thought that was pretty uh, historically difficult. So, Michael, finally, and I, I've kept you way longer than I meant to. Sorry about that, but you're so interesting to me. Like, So what's it like to go from an Ivy League locker room to an NFL locker room, I mean, I don't want to say is it an intellectual wasteland because that's just not fair and that's not cool, but it's obviously going to be different. Like, what kind of conversations are you having? Are you seeking guys out to talk about these things you used to talk about then, or have you moved on to the next thing, or are there just clicks? Like, intellectually, how does it work when you came from where you were to where you are right now? You know, I don't really think it's all that different. Um, I think at the end of the day, football locker rooms are football locker rooms, and you get the same type of driven guys in those types of locker rooms where you know everybody's dedicated to the sport of football whether you're playing ivy league football pop warner football all the way up to the pros and you get the different personalities um and you get all the different things that make football locker rooms great um and it's just that diversity of all the different types of personalities cultures backgrounds um you know i'm a canadian kid who played uh football in ohio and then went to brown you know versus you know, um, a bunch of guys who are vets that have been playing uh, big time D1 college football, made it all the way to the league, first round draft picks and everything. So you get a little bit, you get a lot of different flavors throughout the locker room, but football locker rooms are football locker rooms. And, you know, where at what level it doesn't really matter you get very similar personalities what an awesome football conversation great great journey as well michael hoyt d lyman for the rams he was a team captain and an all ivy league player at brown and you've got san francisco at la sunday big big game michael really appreciate that conversation great to meet you great to have you on the show and thanks so much good luck this weekend yep appreciate it jim thanks good night now